morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. After a long period of our absence, this is the Broken Oars podcast, where two white middle-aged men of a certain temperament discuss things that they really just shouldn't discuss if they ever want to be employed again in the English-speaking world. So, Aaron, what entirely non-controversial and harmless topic are we talking about today? We are talking about, if my notes are correct, uh, Lewin, old friend, old buddy, old crewmate, old colleague of mine, about the fact that we haven't done a Broken Oars podcast for about three months. And this is because you have been, if I'm not much mistaken, uh, moving house, failing to catch COVID and fighting the teaching system from within. Would that be an accurate summation? Um, Yeah, to a certain extent. Life, yeah, life happened to me in in unfortunately, not a sort of uh, particularly dramatic fashion. I can't say that there's been any particular reason since January. Well, I haven't got my act together to sit down and record this, but there's just been one damn thing after another. And so for about Next a to having a child and a bereavement, moving house is one of the most stressful things that you can do. It's a slightly bizarre one because... We don't, you know, tell me why. All I had to do was shove a load of boxes in there. We were in, we were up and running. We had bedrooms um, in about 12 hours. We had curtains within about 48. Was it a planning failure? Did you fail to get Northern Monkeys in to do the heavy lifting? Is that what we're talking? No, no. We we had a bunch of Southern Monkeys who were absolutely brilliant to do the heavy lifting. Delivery men should be generally praised. So, so the, the guys who, well, not delivery men, but removals men, the, the guys who come around, put your entire life in a van and drive it to your new house, are they do something that is highly, highly skilled. Like the whole thing happened in less than a working day. And it's like, yes, you pay a lot of money for it. Yes, it's worth it because it was just like oh wow everything's gone and now we can just drive to a cafe and wait for people to give us the keys and we had that interesting moment where we're sitting in the cafe technically homeless because we'd left the last place and we put the keys through the door and (laughs) you haven't got the keys to the next place and you're just sitting there and just going okay okay Well, congratulations um, on the new house. I'd just like to say um, that that if you ever do find yourself homeless, then I will always find space for your lovely wife and your two darling children, but you will have to sleep in the garden. Uh, that's just fair enough. So you're not in witness protection. You weren't having your entire life packed up and moved because you've ratted on, on your underboss or your capo de regime or whatever they're called in, in your particular part of um, mafioso. <laughs> You haven't ratted on your headmaster, even better. Um, we're not going to talk about um, your wonderful experiences of extended projects, unless, of course, we have any teachers in our remaining listenership who would like to hear yeah, about it. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I don't think, I don't think I could talk publicly about it. Some, right. it. The part of the job that I love the most just became the most difficult part of the job. Um, I had non-COVID, which is like COVID, except... Uh, you don't get a lateral flow test positive and therefore you don't get to get five days off work. You don't get that anymore. Um, But you could have actually at the time got that. Um, And then I've just, 
I, yeah, I'm, I'm finally on holiday and I'm finally just going, oh, I can breathe again. This is quite nice. Well, it's nice to have you back. And we're not going to talk about the fact that, that you've been doing your, your QTS, which is Qualified Teacher Status, despite the fact you've been teaching um, small children for over a decade without it, which is a little bit like letting a, um, a cardiothoracic surgeon loose on chest cavities because he's got his own hacksaw. Okay, so we're not talking about any of the reasons why we haven't managed to get a podcast out in the last um, eight to 12 weeks, no, even, though the, even though the regions are, the, the reasons are legion. And, and despite you going, well, it's just life and everyone has it and it's finally caught up with me, you have had rather a lot on your plate. It's, it's been a busy one, but I, th I think that's what it comes down to. It's just basically been fundamentally very busy. And I've had roughly enough band bandwidth to sit on the erg in the evening and, and hurt myself doing that. If yeah. we're not talking about anything that's happened to you over the last 12 weeks, and we're certainly not talking about anything that's happened to me because it's massively embarrassing and it's got nothing to do with the, with my current short haircut. Um, are we talking about then the fact that uh, the Twilight series basically teaches young girls to go out with abusive men and the puberty unleashes a dark and monstrous beast in boys? No, but I think we should just mention that. Because... <laughs> I mean, I'm late to the party, but... I mean, when did you read it? I started watching the movies when I was restringing the guitar and um, I, within about 15 minutes, I was like, this is going to end really badly for Bella. This is, this is horrible. This is basically if a man is horrible and violent and feral and vicious and you show me enough love, then you can redeem him. And that is not a good message to send to anyone. You should read the books. The books are worse. Honest to God, the books, right? They start with a quote about how you should essentially do literally anything for love that's the whole point she does do that she but does Jim say if you love someone enough you will do anything to be with them even though it may destroy you i'm going to quote three three great philosophers here the first is one from newcastle called gordon you might know him by his other name of stinge and he said if you love someone set them free which I believe is, is something to do with when he had ferrets as a lad. Uh, the philosopher Jagger uh, once said, um, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might get what you need. And Jim Steinman, who I believe taught Aristotle and Plato, said, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And it's the I won't do that bit that is the key to that philosophical axiom. Yeah, yeah, except this is the whole problem with Stephanie Myers. She, she skipped on the won't do that. She said will do anything for love. Frankly, I, I personally think um, there are two things that you should keep your daughters away from. One is boys, two is the Twilight series. Okay. It's just, and, and to be honest, if I had to choose between them, I'd just go, yeah, Twilight series is absolutely trash. It is... It's a primer for young girls on how to justify being in an abusive relationship. It gives you everything you need, all the, all the statements. And I really, you know, the thing is, it's actually quite compulsively written. Um, and I've read all four and you do want to find out what happens, but I'm going to ruin it for everybody reading now. In the end, Bella dies, and the actual instrument of her death is Edward. What Edward actually kills Bella in the end. The violent, but, abusive, 
ferocious feral man kills the the epitome of a predatory man yeah actually is the cause of Bella's death in the end but it's okay because she's reborn as vampire Bella who is better stronger faster more confident more beautiful and it's it is literally and because it is so well packaged because it's so well written when I say so well written it's like it's very high quality trash obviously but you know it we're not it pulls you through it it pulls you through it very, very effectively. But because it does that, you might not realise just how much you're being sucked into. You know, I, I, I kind of worry instinctively about the effect that it has on young girls and teenage girls reading it. But I, I think you probably also worry equally about the effect that it would have on young boys and thinking ah edward cullen the distant violent hair trigger murderous individual with anger management issues gets the girl yeah and lives happily ever after that that's not that's not how you you know that's not how you should be teaching your boys to be it is not how we should be teaching our boys to be and given that one in three men women and children in the uk will experience domestic violence and the vast majority of those who who are in abusive relationships never actually leave them and die in them i think i just put it on because i had a guitar to restring and i it was absolutely it was horrible to watch. And I thought the subtext was pretty blatant, to be fair. So if we're not talking about Twilight, are we talking about the fact that when I was younger, I used to watch the West Wing and think, I, I think we should have a president like Jed Bartlett. He is, he's well read and he has a Nobel Prize for economics and he, is, he seems to have all of the answers and he can make erudite quotes from obscure philosophical tracts. And now when I watch it back, I go, God, if Jed Bartlett was president, I'd assassinate him myself. What a know-it-all fucking gobshite. Are we talking about the West Wing? No, I haven't thought about the West Wing in a long time. I've only watched a few episodes of West Wing. I'm I'm worried that I'm going to say the reason why I didn't keep watching it because it had no guns, fights, no car chases, no punch ups, uh, no explosion. So uh, there was like a lot of good TV. So there was like the Shield and the Wire, and and they they all had guns and death and and violence. Oh yeah, and there was the Sopranos and stuff like that. I I think. The Sopranos had all the same elements of like drama and leadership and, and stuff like that. But there was like, but there, there was, there was also violence being 25. I kind of know, you know, I knew what motivated myself at that point. And being I just 25 thought, and essentially still a teenage boy as most, as most men are when they are 25. Uh, yeah. You knew exactly what was motivating your yeah. watch. Okay. Not Jed Bartlett, not Twilight, not the West Wing, not what we've been doing for the last eight. To, to, so, what are we talking about, Lewin? And and why why are we here? What murky waters are we about to put our ham-fisted feet into our mouths in? There's a mixing of metaphors today. We're going to discuss the entirely calm, rationally debated, and 
completely impersonal topic of trans women in women's sports. Nobody's ever got in trouble for this before. And And I don't see why we should be the first. And we are eminently qualified to weigh on this, weigh in on this because we are white, middle-class, middle-aged, middle-educated men of a certain age, temperament and disposition. But what what has actually triggered us getting the band back together? Could there have been something said on Twitter? Well, it certainly wasn't Fallon Fox, who was um, essentially, after transitioning, beat a woman into unconsciousness in the MMA ring. I think they call it the octagon, don't they? Or the cage or whatever it was. Called the octagon. Um, and, and for some reason, that one slipped past everyone's attention apart from the Joe Rogan podcast. Can I just um, ask a question about this? You you have, and I believe it's not quite on record, but but um, it's you have very strong views on the MMA. Something about it being a refuge for drug adult drug adult psychotics was was that a neat part? drug adult steroid abusing freaks? Right, and that that's was, just the women's league. Um, drug adult drug adult steroid abusing freaks, and that's just the women's league. Now MMA is remarkably the acronym is remarkably like MMU, which is Manchester Metropolitan University. <laughs> Can we just ask, are, are you drawing any inference between the two? You're not saying that about Manchester Met, are you? Um, you must have no, and and in, and general, I I I would say that that is more the stereotype of mixed martial arts and cage fighting and the ultimate fighting championship and whatever it is. But no, I'm not going to, I, I never had a bad experience with anyone from MMU. I mean, did you ever actually walk past it or Ali can't race past it on your bike and, and and no one ever jumped out and tried to nut you or put you in a a, a guillotine choke or whatever they call it. No, not at all. So the rumors are, 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 are it's that the rumors aren't true. It's not. It's not financed by um, Dana White. It's not part of the MMA, and MMU isn't churning out the next generation of cage warriors to unleash on American shores. It's actually a universe. Well, it could be. I mean, let's face it. It's Manchester. They like a scrap up there. But it. Harsh but fair. No, I mean, sort of in general, I kind of, I look at MMA. And I think they're basically this sport that looked at the harsh reality of the ordinariness of most participants' physical performance and then just said, yeah, we're going to test you once every three months. And that they do have a certain reputation. It's not a classy thing that people are into. It's Again, it's something that really appeals to 25-year-old man-children who really kind of like, or, or, or they judge TV programs by the number of explosions, gunfights, and silicon breast enhancements available in any single episode. I used to watch in my rented flat back in Norwich when I was doing my PhD, we'd watch each episode of The Sopranos as, as like a rented house together. There are three of us, myself, Jack, Michael, and we'd wait for the warnings to come on at the beginning. And we were looking for like the whole holy quintology of nudity, violence, drug abuse, swearing, and adult content, all in one episode. 
That's what we wanted. That's what we were looking for. And basically, pretty much, that is mixed martial arts. That's who it appeals to. So when you did have a trans woman uh, inflicting very significant physical violence upon a woman, woman, um, I don't think anybody really sat up and took notice. However, um, you no longer have to watch the, the Sopranos for that because you basically, you, you moved to Manchester and got your fill of... of um, <laughs> just walking past MMU. Just, just walking past MMU. But what we're going to do, we... I think we came out in defense of the ladies who have been racing against Leah Thomas and it caused a little bit of a Twitter firestorm, which you dealt with by saying, I I'm not playing this game anymore because it's basically turning into a, a shouting match on Twitter. And I, I did my usual, well, every everybody, regardless of gender, we are all men and women of reason here and we can debate and discuss this. And I found out very, very quickly that you can't debate and discuss this. This, this touches a lot of nerves. And a lot of people have very explosive opinions about it. So how are we going to approach it? Are we concerned as rowers that we're going to turn up at Durham Regatta only to be rowed out of the medals by some suspicious looking men? I think there is a very, very strong chance that that's going to happen at some point, not too far in the future. We, we are apparently going to have British Cycling is currently... They they have got a young trans woman, Emily Bridges, who last year, whilst actually undergoing testosterone suppression therapy, um, and is only twenty one, um, will be apparently aiming for the Olympics. Will be going to the Commonwealth and was winning bronze medals and gold medals in various events at a national level last year. So we'll probably be absolutely the best um, women's cyclist in history, as and when they step on the track or, or out into the peloton sometime in the next six months and if it can happen in cycling you know i think in general rowing kind of looks at cycling and say oh let's do what they're doing without all the drugs and and so yes i i think there is a very very kind of i'm not going to say risk but i think there's a there's an absolute chance that this will happen at some point there will, this be, will be single scholar or a um or a pair of people who nine months ago were winning races in the men's field at a at, let's say were winning events in club and have decided they're now going to try and win events in champ in the women's events so this is a logical next step, which means the next question will be, is this, is this a next step that we are looking at because of the Leah Thomas effect? Because it, because this step has been taken in other sports and it has, a, it, it's created a high profile impact and debate about it. It's only going to happen if it is allowed to happen. So British law is quite clear on this, that you can still discriminate on the basis of sex, not gender, sex, 
these two things are, are, are different. You can discriminate on the basis of sex in sporting events if this is what is required to ensure fairness. Okay. And I, I think rowing in particular, where there is no particular advantage to being light or, and there's no particular advantage to being small and streamlined because the boat does all the streamlining for you, we'll probably see one of the biggest discrepancies between, in fact, I mean, sort of like we, we can kind of put numbers on sheer power output very easily, but we, you will see one of the hardest to overcome discrepancies between elite male performance and elite female performance. Okay. So having identified that and having ide- even just talking about it, we are both picking our way through this very carefully because we are aware because of our Twitter experiences that it's something of a minefield. And that's not just our Twitter experiences. It's actually looking at the, the outpouring for and against um, that comes out every time Leah Thomas steps onto the blocks of a swim meet to compete. How would you like to frame our debate on this in a, in a, in a way that's establishes the parameters of the debate, the fairness that, w- that we're trying to achieve with it. So we're not actually, even though we joke about being middle-class and middle-aged, we're not just going to go, well, it's, it's terrible in my day, in my day. We're not doing that. How are we framing the debate, Lou? Well, so first of all, I'd like to start, start with the things that I don't believe that we can get into too much trouble for, which I would like to reiterate what is currently known about the performance difference between men and women, which is significant and dramatic. Are you talking about the science? Well, I don't want to use the phrase the science because I don't believe that we should believe the science because the science doesn't believe the science. The science is the current best guess. But that's the point. So, about, yes, that's the point. So, so that's the all. I, when, when we talk about what is known, we have to caveat this: that more studies are being done on this subject. More studies will also be done. Um, we should also say that um, we are both probably more educated than is good for us but we are not experts in this field. We are borrowing from, uh, in my case, someone who, who absolutely is an expert in this field and has been responsible for writing the World Rugby Statement on um, trans women in women's sport or in women's rugby, more importantly, again, a c- contact and collision sport. So... Again, it's not just a question of fairness versus inclusion. It's a question of inclusion versus fairness and safety, um, so, which I think we are, thankfully, we don't have to worry about, particularly. Not unless we actually bring our, our concept of, of bumps Olympic rowing and being allowed to board other ships while waving cutlasses into the Olympics, which I think really has to happen if we're not going to lose, lose the Olympics as a rowing sport. So, okay, so... We're taking what is... No, sorry, hang on. I'm just going to stop you there. You said we're going to lose the Olympics as a rowing sport. So basically, all of the Olympics (laughs) is just like, 
is basically uh, it's just this thing we tack on to the Olympic rowing regatta. We'll see. Okay, if, if if we let that one go, the Olympics, we, we'll still have the Olympic rowing regatta. We, we every four years, we 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 just won't be bothered with like the opening ceremony and all that expensive bump. You know, is that, the, is that not the case? Is that not the case? I mean, it's only the rowing that I tune in to watch. I mean, everything else. Apparently is not. Bluff. Um. Yeah. So. Sorry, I've been I've been very ill. My brain doesn't work at the best of times, and I've started mixing up my sentences. I'm probably due for Alzheimer's any time soon. But yes, good point, well made. So we're taking what is known in the currently available science, and we're 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 reading it from a viewpoint of not being experts, but with certain amount of of academic um, skills to be able to pick from research and form conclusions. Yeah. What else? How else would you like to frame the debate? I, I think we then, we need to get into the much thornier topic of the morality. You know, do we believe that what we are seeing in women's sport at the moment is morally okay? And I think this becomes a much, much more complex issue. I also think that we should talk about the practicalities because in the end, I don't think that you can just say to men who have transi- transitioned into women, you can't do sport because we, we, sport is great. We both believe that sport is great. Yeah, especially if we win stuff, it's even better, but generally. Um, We absolutely believe sport is great and it has a value more than just winning stuff, even though we both really enjoy winning stuff. And so to turn around and just say to anyone who's transitioned, there is no place for you in any sport or rowing in particular or swimming or weightlifting or MMA or any of these things is, I I don't think that is acceptable. So I do think we should actually throw some ideas out there for a way forward. Okay. Um, Um, And the final part, what, I'm calling it a, a debate. It's not a debate. It's a it's a discussion. That's the whole point of how we move forward as, as yeah. human beings. We we discuss. Um, yeah. So- um, I, I'd also say technically, a debate comes to a conclusion, and I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. Yeah. I, I think at best we can like talk about what we sort of know, and again, what we know is the current best guess. Um, but I, I do also think we should discuss this this issue of transphobia and respect for trans people and the question of misgendering. Okay. And how misgendering, and I'll I'll discuss it from a very personal point of view, but the, when misgendering, when you misgender someone, but you correctly sex someone, Again, are we into this strange thing that we have now where speaking the truth becomes an offensive act? 
Okay, so the science, which is um, what is currently known, but is subject to change because science mm -hmm. is always evolving, the morality surrounding the discussion, the practicalities, the practicalities of, of um, making sport inclusive for all, regardless of yep. how people choose to identify, and the transphobia surrounding the discussion to date, I think would be a fair, a fair comment. So let's pretend that I'm going to play the Northern monkey, the illiterate Northern monkey sidekick to your, your brilliant Holmesian scientist. Let's start with the science. How many Dr. books Heinrich. have you actually written, Aaron? A few. You could, you could probably safely say you've written more books than I've actually read in the past year, which is a shocking indictment on me because you haven't read, written that many books, but you have written quite a few books i mean actual you know not not just spot go splash kind of books actual I've, honest I, to god books i th i think that my spot series is possibly <laughs> the high watermark of my i mean sea spot run was obviously a classic sea spot get busted for peds was heartbreaking uh, the, that it, it didn't deserve that to happen but that's what that's what it is when you're an east german puppy in a repressive regime system Yes, but I, I would be the first to say, and I'm saying this before you do it and before the rest of my family does it, that, you know, I, I take all of my first class degrees, my PhD, and I, I would point out that they are in humanities and social sciences, which means they are they are naturally not worth as much as anything that comes from a STEM background. So I, I will play the illiterate Northern Monkey, and I it's it's again, it's casting against type, and Lewin will play the, the clever and insightful one at this point. So the science. Um, so fundamentally, there are differences between men and women. How dare you um, even suggest it? How dare you? I'm cancelling my subscription to The Guardian as we speak. Okay, right, hang on. Let's, no, let, let's, yeah, let's use correct, the correct terminology. There are differences between male, adult male humans and adult female humans. These differences are what is known as sexual dimorphism. Um, we are one of the least sexually dimorphic um, primate species, so gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees and bonobos are all much more sexually dimorphic than us, but partly due to what might be thought of as a rather patriarchal history of our society. Oh, not the patriarchy. <laughs> that You've got to love the patriarchy. Um, if you don't, they throw you in jail and refuse to give you the vote. Moving on. Um, most sports um and there are a few exceptions most sports tend to look at or or test for examples of that extreme or, or the extremes of sexual dimorphism essentially okay. so if we look at the things where there are physical advantages of men over women or of males over females, they do tend to be in things that we often associate with sporting prowess. So these are classically height, lean muscle mass, strength, in particular upper body strength, um, aerobic capacity or VO2 max, the actual volume of your lungs. Then there's a very important one which people tend to forget, which is the increased strength of male bones in the hands and in the face. We are designed to throw and to take punches. And this is... You're talking about bone density at this point. Yeah. So bone density is like 
quite literally how thick and how hard the bones are in your hands and around your face and your eyes and all these things. Um, there's a significantly increased level of hemoglobin in the blood, which is the oxygen carrying molecule that I'm sure most people remember from school. Um, so essentially men's blood can carry more oxygen per cubic centimeter than women's blood, which is critical for, amongst other things, it leads to critically for cycling, swimming, rowing, and running increased power generation. So the amount of watts you can generate for more than 90 seconds. Also men, even though they're bigger, they tend to have a greater power to weight ratio. Probably the best example of this in rowing, if we're talking to a rowing audience, is the fact that elite male lightweights almost invariably have a greater 2K score than elite um, female heavyweights, even though they're sort of having to weigh in at under 72 kilograms. The male score will typically be faster than the female yeah. heavyweight score. Um, the absolute upper reaches of uh, female heavyweight rowers, where you're talking below 625, there may... Or, maybe one or two elite lightweight rowers who are in that region, but most elite lightweight rowers now are below 615. Okay. So this is where we currently are in terms of what is known. And I Between un unaltered, untransitioned adult human males and adult human females. And this is also with the caveat that, that, you know, the work on this has been done, but as you, you put in the notes, the, the whole point about science is it's always evolving with the exception yeah. of gravity and the periodic table. Ev evolution is always evolving and science is always evolving too. The, the bone density things, uh, you know, and you've made the link to uh, primates because it, it should be re remembered and, and we tend not to as human beings, but we are part of the great ape family. Yeah. That, is, that is where we come from. The reason why men have a tendency to fling poo everywhere is because it's it's yes it's um it's because of our great ancestors. We we are straying into dangerous territory that I don't and I want to acknowledge the the great controversy in what we've just said. There there are definitely people out there who would actually say, "Hang on, that's a, that's just an evos, evolutionary psychology, just say story. That's just like." That's a load of, you know, essentially okay. right wing claptrap. And so I'm gonna I'm not gonna sort of like argue the point on that one. I'm going to say that for various reasons, it has been measured in a great many men and a great many women that we have that men have much denser bones in their face and in their hands and in their forearms. And it's also been established, the, the list that we've just given from height, lean muscle mass, strength, particularly in the upper body, VO2 max, increased lung mm -hmm. volume, all of these things tend to be associated with, with, with males who have undergone male puberty. These are, these are established yes. benefits of undergoing male puberty. Yes. That, and or, 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 I mean, benefits is the wrong word, maybe. These are the established changes that come with male yeah. puberty. And, um, and, and specifically, where there is dimorphism in prepubescent children, 
it is there, but it tends to be difficult to detect, much less, and it is much more on the psychological side and arguably much easier to influence by the environment. But um, it is it is not just male puberty, it is largely male puberty. But it is, I, I prefer to think, think that, I prefer to say that there is strong anecdotal evidence that there is, it is male puberty plus maleness, the possession of a Y chromosome. And how does, and, that, in, how does that feed into what we're talking about? Okay, so essentially, many of these things and um are essential for sporting performance okay. and, and as i said many sports test for the presence of the extremes of male di dimorphism so our sport rowing um the biggest determinant of victory amongst male rowers is vo2 max um, not specific VO2 max, that's cycling, uh, but it's actually flat out how much oxygen can you turn into carbon dioxide in the space of six minutes. And rowers, because of their large size and using all the muscles in their body, tend to do this faster than nearly any other sport um, without reference to their body weight. And so, and this is dramatically and to give you a, an idea the there is typically a 10 percent speed difference in boats over two kilometers um 10 to 15 percent i think it is between men and women's boats however that 10 to 15 percent speed difference is based on a essentially an increase of 400 and something watts to 590. Yeah, it, it, it's about a 50% increase from the female level to reach the male level. So if you look at the wattage output rather than the split for the women's world record versus the men's world record, the wattage output is just, it's about 420 watts versus 590 watts okay so you're looking at one and a half times slightly less than one and a half times at the very top end if you go onto the concept 2 website and you look at the 90th percentile the 90th percentile for men is six minutes 55 um the 90th percentile for women is seven minutes 55 and that that that's pretty consistent year on year um, and again, that's a, in terms of watts, in terms of the SI unit, the power output, that's women going to men, you're multiplying that by one and a half to get there. And so that's a very, very dramatic difference between men and women. And that is something that we can again put down to having gone through male... Male puberty. Not in some, but it's certainly a, a significant factor in it. And what would you suggest the extra half chromosome that uh, women possess that men do not, 
that's going to code for different things before puberty and after. Would there be an impact there? Um, well, essentially, uh, okay, I, w- I wish I was a better human geneticist and I could tell you everything that was in there, but essentially um, that extra half chromosome contains the essence of femaleness. That, that's a terrible way of putting it, but essentially that is what allows the, um, the default progression of human development into a female to happen. When you take those things away, the progression essentially takes a left-hand turn and you become a man or a male. And that process and not having those things and um, genes can turn things off as well as turn things on, um, but the process of turning femaleness on in part contributes to these differences. So again, it's a question of maleness plus male puberty plus testosterone leads to the complete set of physical, I'm going to say advantages, but physical differences we see amongst men. Okay. So I'm with you so far, which is great because I I am, I've, you know, managed to establish both a northern monkey and descended from a great ape. I didn't think that interspecies breeding was allowed, but apparently in my case it is. If you, if you have gone through these changes and you, which give you all of the things that we have listed and you were then to transition, which of those can you then take away through the act of transitioning? Okay. So transitioning has different meanings. So first of all, you can transition endocrinologically, whereby as a, as a man transitioning to a woman, you can suppress your testosterone production. And this is currently required by any sport that allows trans women to compete. They have to, as per IOC guidelines, they have to su- suppress their testosterone two female levels for at least a year. And the first thing that you see is a drop in hemoglobin concentrations in the blood very rapidly within kind of like four or five weeks from male levels or male typical levels to female typical levels. Okay. Okay. Now, again, there is a wide variation in what is a male typical level and a female typical level, but you'll see a drop. Um, and this is, but this is typically the only thing where you see a rapid and immediate change from a male level to a female level. So you would not see a similar change in say lean muscle mass, power to weight ratio, explosiveness, or any of the other things that we've listed. You see changes in them all. You you see in all those things, um, I mean, literally that height, lean muscle mass, strength, particularly upper body strength, VO2 max, uh, bone density as well will start to reduce. Proportion of fast twitch muscle fibers will start to reduce. Um, But in general, if and this has been studied, and apparently there are 13 published scientific papers that have been published in the past 10 years. These are all recent works. These are all looking at this. Um, 
these are all high quality papers. And what they have found is that things like strength and power, so strength, you know, essentially your grip strength or your bench press, power, what wattage you can stay in on a bike for two minutes, four minutes, an hour, whatever it is. These are the typical male advantages between 25 and 30%. The post-testosterone suppression for a year, these are reduced to 20 to 25%. So essentially you're looking at a 5% reduction. So the other things will reduce, but it's the hemoglobin that tends to be the most dramatically noted yep. one which means that even though the other things reduced, you will still be retaining some, and again, it's, it's probably the wrong language, but you are retaining some of the advantages or some of the things that you get from having gone through male puberty. Yes, essentially. Um, and the current evidence is that after a year of testosterone suppression, you retain the overwhelming majority of those things. And to come back to the point that we made earlier about the, the, um, the genetic basis, the chromosomes, because um, these have myriad effects in turning things on and off, you know, the, whether it, and we've described it probably, again, slightly clumsily as the essence of, of, of femaleness in this regard. But that also plays into that as well, because you're still even if you transition, you are still carrying that extra half chromosome. And how does that impact? How would that impact with regards to a, a trans woman and a, a woman who's gone through female puberty? Well, I mean, it, it, it's almost, I mean, when you're looking at the fundamental chromosomal difference and people look at this I mean, I, I certainly don't know of any information that enables you to say, oh, we see, this is the difference of puberty. This is the difference of current testosterone levels. And this is the difference of the underlying genetic difference between men and women. Mm. Um, so if you, if you literally had identical twins, but you'd literally snipped out that kind of two thirds of a chromosome to leave one of the identical twins behind with a Y chromosome and one the next chromosome. I don't think you can separate those things out neatly. One thing we do know is that if you take a 13 year old girl and you spend the next six years bathing her in male hormones or compounds very, very similar and arguably much more uh, that have a much stronger effect than male hormones, namely anabolic steroids, um, they do get bigger and stronger and they do, they are able to lift more weight and generate more power and recover more quickly and all of these things, but they do not become as big and as strong and as fast as men. And we know this because there are some frankly, deeply brutal, shitty dictatorial regimes that have done this experiment for us. And most obvious of these um, is the German Democratic Republic. And they, you know, genuinely they selected thousands of young girls for their physical prowess and then more or less subjected them to male puberty. 
and the gap between possible male performance and possible female performance closed. And, you know, back in the 80s, people were saying, oh, you know, by 2020, you know, the women are going to be running as fast as men on current. Yes, but even, but even though we have that example from history, and even though we have the example of the G, of the GDR and its fondness for little blue pills and um, young girls, um, quite horrifically, and there are many studies out there that show the um, physical and psychological impacts of these doping um, regimens on these young ladies, the gap between male and female performance never actually closed to the point where you had a female athlete who was as uh, aerobically powerful or explosively strong as a similar male athlete. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, that is entirely fair to say. Um, and that's a large sample. That's not one or two. That's a large sample, it? And, it was, and it was people who were specifically picked for their sporting ability. It, it wasn't just a random sample that they they did this to so you can actually say this was the best case scenario essentially or that terrible choice of words sorry um but you know if you were trying to show that it was just an effect of testosterone or testosterone like compounds this was the experiment to do and you can actually see that yes they they made some very very fast girls and women but not as fast as men so looking so it's at what, not just testosterone looking at what we've just discussed then we've we've argued that going one way which is which is the changes that male puberty brings and then we've also argued it the other way by saying when you look at a sample size of, of young girls and and young um, female athletes who were essentially subjected to male puberty, the gap still didn't, the gap between the two still didn't close. So it would be fair to say that um, there will always be a, not fair to say, not always, but there are physical advantages to having undergone male puberty if you, are, if you are also a biological male. Yes, and currently, the endocrinological transition that is demanded by sporting bodies does not remove those in its entirety. It removes, removes some, but not even the majority of those advantages. Okay, so suppression removes some of the attributes, but it doesn't entirely suppress them and it doesn't entirely remove them and you still retain what, what on a sporting field would be competitive advantages. I believe so, and I believe that this is the current state of our knowledge to be, you know, to be confirmed or refuted at some future date. So there is space for science to do a, a, a you know, a similar to, there's space for science to do new tests into this kind of thing uh, and um, longer term studies. But as yes. we currently understand it, that's the, that's the field of play that we're looking at with, a, with, a, with something like, with someone like yep. Leah Thomas competing in women's swim meets. Now, that would suggest that a trans woman who has undergone testosterone suppression for a year still retains an unfair advantage in women's swimming. Okay. 
or women's sport, full stop. Um, and there are many arguments that are made against this, and I have heard strong refutations of all of them. Um, now, I would say that at this point, the postmodernists and the neo-structuralists and the critical constructivists will be rubbing their hands with glee at my borderline autistic sciencing, and they will leap in there. Because we are about to say, if this is the case, why is it allowed? And the postmodernist um, you know, relativistic or social constructivism perspective would be? Um, essentially, they would basically say the only reason that men are like this is not biology. It is men are like this because we say they should be like this, because we expect them to be like this, and we savagely beat them if they are not like this. Girls are shorter and not as physically strong because we oppress them until they stop being tall and physically strong. And if we only gave more encouragement girls to be sporty, they would be as tall and strong and aerobically powerful as boys. And this is actually a terrible argument, which requires you to genuinely either ignore or not be aware of just some very, very strong evidence against it. Um, now, the guy I'm going to quote, go on. Sorry, I was going to say this sounds suspiciously um, like some kind of French post-structuralist idea of everything is of relative value, whether that is a, a pyramid made of gold or a pile of dog poo. It all depends upon. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Classic. Have, you been, have you been reading Derrida again? Because you know uh, what it did to you last time. Jackie Derrida. No, I try and, I try and avoid all the French postmodernists because I'm worried I might turn into a paedophile. When I, when I worked in Manchester, I, I was colleagues with one of the world's great Derrida scholars um, who had um, made a, an, an entire career and life's work and indeed an incipient professorship out of studying the great man's works. And, and I said, I can't quite get away with Derrida, Pat. And he, and he went, well, the, the thing is, Aaron, that you have to understand about Derrida, it's all a big metaphysical joke, and you can boil it down to a very simple sentence, which is, everything that is, is, and we are all punctured by space and time. And I said, why did he keep publishing them? And he said, for the same reason that every academic does, because he needed the money, and he was French, and he wouldn't shut up about it. So, so hang on, so, wait, this, this, um, this expert, what's his name? Patrick O'Connor, I believe he's now at uh, University of Nottingham. Patrick O'Connor. Is he the one who absolutely slated Judith Butler for completely misusing Derrida and just, like, getting him massively wrong in gender trouble? I would have to, I would have to check, but it does suspiciously sound like him. He was remarkably dismissive about the man who paid yeah. his mortgage. <laughs> Marvellous. Um, yeah, but, I mean, yes, it... I, I'm not not entirely sure that Derrida was behind social constructivism, but you know we absolutely can't actually dismiss the environmental impact upon boys and girls and the expectations placed upon them. I I don't think that that should 
in any way, shape or form be taken out of hand. And I imagine there are a very, very large number of boys who have broken themselves upon the field of sport that they were not very suited to because they were expected to. And a great many women, particularly in this country, we have a particular problem in this country, don't we? With women leaving sport during their teenage years. We have talked to Sally Kettle and various others, uh, Jennifer Say and uh, also Tristan. And the outcome of talking to those people is that girls tend to be just as sporty as boys until the age of about 13. And then a combination of things hits them. And if they manage to continue with sport through their teens, um, it tends to hit them when they get into relationships or, or they have a family. And we lose women from sport and a lot of them don't come back. And it is actually a social problem. We, we absolutely can't kind of dismiss it. There, there are social pressures upon people and sporting activity and quite possibly sporting performance is part of that. And there are still gender stereotypes, which, you know, the it's we aren't that far past the idea that a woman couldn't possibly run a marathon because she will explode. Aaron, Aaron, no, nobody ever said that a woman couldn't run a marathon because she would explode. They said she couldn't run a, run a marathon because her brain would overheat and her uterus would fall out. Sorry, but this is what happens when you, you freewheel it and you don't do your research. From We aren't that far from the, the, the idea that uh, these arenas were not for women. But in this case, when we're discussing what might be described as the vulgar metrics of sport, strength, power, height, leanness, bone density, fast twitch muscle percentage, etc. These things do correlate with testosterone levels, um, both in utero and, you know, post-puberty, and they correlate in a dose-dependent fashion. So male pattern dimorphism and behaviours both correlate in a dose-dependent fashion with higher or level or higher or lower testosterone levels, both in males by themselves. So when you're looking at a group of males, the males with higher levels of testosterone tend to be stronger and more powerful, and in females by themselves. So just when you look at Female humans, essentially, the more testosterone they have, they tend to be stronger and more powerful. Um, so it's not just a question of men versus women. It's within sexes as well as with, and you can also see this in changes in behavior um, between people with higher testosterone and people with lower testosterone. Okay. Would that correlate in males who externally appear to be female, the testosterone level and the male-specific dimorphism and behaviour, would there be a correlation there that, that gives weight to the social constructivism argument? Um, not really. So if you look at um, androgen-insensitive males, so, so these are men who are insensitive to the developmental, the in utero developmental effects of testosterone. Um, 
and appear to have developed as women, but actually or, or they appear to have developed as girls, but they have higher than expected levels of testosterone. Um, and they have been exposed to higher than le expected levels of testosterone in the womb. They, even though they are being raised as girls, they are viewed as girls. They, they are, are ex subject to all the same social pressures as girls. They actually display male specific dimorphism. So they tend to be stronger. They tend to be more powerful. They tend to engage in more male typical behaviors. So social constructs, and we've identified the attitudes to linger that um, stop women from doing sport or dissuade women from doing sport or provide barriers for women in sport. Um, and we've also noted that in the UK, we have a particular problem with, with losing women from sport from an early age. The social constructs in this context, in a kind of, um, I was going to say biological, but that's probably the wrong word. Social constructs in this context play a role, but it's not a defining role. It's more of a, uh, it's more of a supportive nuanced it, it, role. It, it's a, it, it's arguably a supporting role. Yes. Right. Um, also you can look at what happens when you give adult women testosterone. Um, they start to display male typical behaviors and they develop more strength and more power. Um, and we've discussed this with the East German example, um, but in terms of adult women who've gone through puberty um, and it, every person should really read the testimonies of trans men. So women who are transitioning to men about the effect that taking large doses of testosterone has on them. Um, they are both alarming and unintentionally hilarious. As you see a fully grown adult who is past the age of majority undergoing essentially male puberty and making the decisions of a 14 year old boy, whilst they have a bank account and a driving license and the ability to live by themselves. And, um, yeah. And you should just be very, very glad that if you're a man listening to this, uh, you went through that process while your parents could still physically con control you because it would have been a car wreck otherwise. And in fact, it quite often is a car wreck. Well, um, yes. I mean, if you actually look at the, um, the accident and crime and all other statistics for extreme and risky behaviors, you tend to see that they, they peak in young men between the ages of about 14 and 26 when the hormones are running um, slightly uh, wild, I believe would be the technical yes. term. We've also talked about... Um, about we also spend too much time playing computer games and watching The Sopranos. Well, yes, um, but we were very of our generation. This time last year, we talked about the impact of uh, celebrity buff bodies on male um, self-perception and the impact that was having on a generation of young men who were flooding their bodies with various hormones and compounds in, in an attempt to reach Chris Hemsworth-like um, levels of physical perfection and how that impacts. So the the just randomly slinging hormones at something or random or suppressing hormones doesn't isn't necessarily, it's not surgical. And I, having, having seen several surgeries and been in them, uh, 
surgery is pretty messy, even when it's fairly clinical. We're talking fairly blunt instrument approaches to uh, making men and women if we start introducing hormonal therapy. Yeah, I mean, in, in general, if you go to a proper sports doctor um, for the disease of cycling too slowly, when they sit you down and give you a list of things that they're going to give you um, to make you cycle faster, when they get to the anabolic steroids, um, they will let you know the list of side effects and they'll get bored halfway through reading them and basically say, read it yourself but it's long and it's dramatic and it's not good for you. Hormone replacement therapy, hormone suppression therapy, on it, it is not, these are not surgical instruments. These are blunt and um, somewhat subjective and yeah. they have an impact. Yeah, but I mean, what, one thing I would say is that when it comes to the environmental and socially constructed influ influence on the vulgar metrics of sports performance. There is very, very strong evidence to show that testosterone, male puberty, and maleness itself are the key determinants of this. And external social factors are quite weak influences upon this, albeit they are clearly influences. But if we're talking about what happens to individuals under training and highly trained and highly motivated individuals, the key determinant between male performance and female performance is that of male and female, not of how male, males and females are perceived in the world. So let's just extend this because we've already linked to the fact that you know i'm a northern monkey and we're all descended from great apes if we spread that across all primates and sexual dimorphism what do we tend to see do do they have social constructs that that that, that influence their male and female characteristics well okay th this is this is one of the arguments which i will admit i've picked up from the evolutionary psychology mob when when they're faced with this is that fundamentally we see sexual dimorphism across all primates and it's very very similar to the sexual dimorphism it's more extreme than the sexual dimorphism we see in humans but it's very very similar you see bigger stronger more powerful more aggressive more competitive males who tend to be constructed to throw and take blows versus smaller, less strong, less powerful, less physically robust, if not biochemically robust, females um, who are less aggressive and more cautious in their behavior. Now, these are not subject to, I mean, they have, they have their societies, they have their social structures but they are not su subject to social constructivism because they're just not clever enough um you know chimps and gorillas are very clever but they're not that clever but they have what we would think of as social constructs um and the argument that evolution has created this sexual dimorphism 
in every primate species is other than humans, where it just kind of leveled us out, and then we had to recreate exactly the same dimorphism between the sexes through social construction is a fairly far-fetched argument. It, it, it does require us to not really believe that we are evolutionary cousins of monkeys, apes, and the great apes, which I think is a difficult argument to make. Well, I, I think back when, when Darwin first floated the theory of evolution, having stolen it from the other bloke, um, you know, there, there was the famous... Um, debate with the with the bishop who and there were the whole yeah how dare you suggest i'm descended from a monkey I, i've met some of my relatives I, I think we're a lot closer than you think there is that okay so that 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 is that that is the social constructivism argument and i would i would say that this actually this is not a strong argument and it does fall apart when you look into it and there is genuinely very strong evidence against it Okay, the, so that you, we can't just change people's minds about how fast, strong, and aerobically capable women are, as opposed to men. And we can't we can't change their biology by wishing that they were, or suggesting that in time they will become um, faster, stronger, yeah. bigger, or, or more comparable. And we can't level out those differences by suppressing the hormone, uh, by suppressing the testosterone of men for a year. Okay, so let's, that moves us on to the overlapping distribution argument, which is that the difference between the strongest man and the least strong man is vastly greater than the difference between the mean or modal man and the mean or modal woman. Therefore, the distinctions we draw are arbitrary. Wow, well, I think, I think we've already proved that's not the case, but let's get stuck in. Well, um... This isn't actually known as Lewontin's fallacy, even though I, I like to name it after Lewontin. Um, but it's the idea that because there's a big overlap between two groups and you can never make an absolute distinction between those groups on any single metric, therefore, those groups are not separate. This is not a very, very good argument because again essentially what it means that you can turn around and you can say men and women are completely the same and i think as we've already started to establish men and women are not completely the same there are very very significant differences between a large number of physical attributes that they possess um except there is this idea that the strongest woman will always be stronger than the weakest man. The most aerobically fit woman, as anybody who's watched a marathon, will be more aerobically fit than the least aerobically fit man. These things are absolutely true. It doesn't mean there isn't a difference between men and women on these characteristics and that those differences aren't significant. And in terms of what we're talking about, I would say, firstly, there is less overlap than you might believe. 
in certain spheres that are critical to sporting performance. Okay. So we, we've already mentioned this kind of very, very significant gap in essentially the power that you can generate between five and a half and nine minutes. So essentially a 2K score. Yeah. Um, you've, got, you've got to remember ergometer is Latin for work meter. That's what it does. It measures work. And it's actually quite accurate at it. Um, the physiologists will grumble that it's not perfect and like the the chain tension needs to be calibrated and all of these things. But as rowers, we would say that they're physiologists and actually we have the best kit, so it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Concept two, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Dreisigacker brothers. The, the concept two is, of course, perfect. Um, but the overlaps are actually particularly poignant in some cases. And the biggest one of this is in grip strength of young men and young women and highly trained female athletes, as was written by Like, Georges, Ridder, Wunderlicht, Rifa, Seivert, and Esfeld. I think they're German. Um, Whatever gave you that impression? Okay. And, and also, they're Germans doing science, so it must be accurate. You, you know these Teutons with their precision. Um, yes, as we're, we're trying to demolish stereotypes by engaging in more of them. Yes. Um, so essentially, these guys measured the hand grip strength of um, 1,654 healthy men, 533 healthy women, and they included in the 533 healthy women 60 highly trained elite female athletes uh, from sports known to require high hand grip forces. So judo and handball. And um, they looked at the distribution of this. Now, hand grip strength is a bit of a funny one because it is used as a measure of, or it, it is used as an indicator for overall upper body strength. So um, it's just generally considered, because we use our hands all the time, it's related over a, you know, obviously if you're a powerlifter or if you're a bodybuilder, it's going to be different. Or if you're someone who just does chin-ups for a living, it's going to be different. But there's, an, it's there's, a, there's a link between how hard you can squeeze with your hand and in general the strength of your everything that's attached to your shoulder girdle. And uh, there's, there's an equivalence. So you can squeeze yeah. something very hard and then it will give you an equivalent score for your, your upper body strength. Okay. Yeah. And what they found was that 90% of females produced less force than 95% of males. So it was only 10% of women were reaching above the 95th percentile of males there wasn't a there wasn't a particularly big overlap and particularly when they looked at the athletic female population 60 female athletes who required strong hands they found that the force they could produce through the hands corresponded only to the 25th percentile of male subjects 
So that their average score for those 60 women was weaker than 75% of men. Right. And those were the highly trained women. So, um, what that what they said was that even the strongest women would be at a level um so the results of female national elite athletes in, even indicate that the strength level attainable by extremely high levels of training will rarely surpass the 50th percentile of untrained or not specifically trained men so given that this is a this is a test that gives a, a, a an equivalence for upper body strength that therefore has an equivalence for sporting performance. Yes. And particularly something like freestyle swimming, where most of your motile power is coming from your upper body. Um, and there are many aspects which genuinely show very little overlap and as anybody who has been in a rowing club will know there are amongst a trained group of competitive rowers there are very very few women who can beat any of the men in that squad there are one or two who can beat one or two but the overlap is genuinely very small and the overlap might get a bit bigger if you accounted for lean body mass and you did a power to weight thing. But rowing is not particularly a power to weight kind of sport. Um, and that just sheer size of men counts in their favor in the sport of rowing. But if we would, that's very true. Um, and it's a good point you know, well-made considering that we are essentially a rowing podcast that also roams freely and widely across French existential philosophy and uh, anything else that we can possibly take in in any given episode. But if we steer it back to where the debate currently is, which is um, Leah Thomas and um, female swimming, what are the implications of that? Well, I mean, the key thing is this idea that even if there is an overlap inability levels sport takes place between equivalent percentiles of ability so simply because i mean and to be honest the actual overlap in freestyle swimming times at the elite level is probably much bigger than it is for rowing machine scores Mm. um because Swimming has other more complex things in it. Um, But when you look at the people who are lining up on the blocks of the NCAA 500-yard freestyle final, they are representatives from the top 0.1% of women's freestyle swimmers. They are not representative from the entire distribution and that's exactly the same for the men who are contesting that and actually if you look at the times displayed there will be virtually no overlap i mean it's quite possible that 
you know, when, when we're talking, when Katie Ledecky was swimming in that event, the 500 yard freestyle, where she won it by about 38 seconds, um, where she was utterly dominant. When you're looking at something like that, there might've been, she might've been faster than the slowest guy to make the heat of that. But in general, there is very, very little and usually no overlap between women and men at elite events in terms of the times and the raw performance scores they will produce because you're dealing with just such a fine final 0.1 of a percent at the very top of the distribution for both and the differences there are really quite big and more to the point they're much bigger than the segment of the population you're drawing from. So if you've got a five to 10% difference in speed and you're only looking at the top 0.1%, there will be no overlap between the men's and the women's time. And so if you then take a man who may be 4% off the pace of the fastest men, he's still going to be, and you drop him into the women's swimming pool, he's still going to be a long way ahead, genuinely a long way ahead of all the women in that. And he is going to be excluding a woman from that competition. So if I've got this right, and maths was never my strong point, so everyone in the top 0.1% of the men's swimming 500 yard freestyle will be faster than everyone in the women's top 0.1%. Um, because of that average difference between men and women, even when drawn from a wider sample is hugely bigger than the size of the, of the 0.1% that make the start line. It means that even if you went from a final down to two semifinals, down to four quarterfinals, down to eight heats, and you're going purely on performances, you will never have a, a, a woman in that top 0.1% of the men's competition because the differences, the difference in performance between the two groups is so big. That's pretty much it. I'm fairly sure somebody can point out an exception if they went through everybody in the NCAA finals history. But you need to remember that... Um, Leah Thomas, when she was William Thomas, essentially was she, she was she was only just making like the heat. Uh, I, I think she was ranked thirty-two for the one thousand six hundred fifty-yard race, and for the two hundred-yard race was something like five hundred and fifty. Okay. So wouldn't have even wouldn't have even made the the you know the competition essentially and is now appears to be winning these competitions at a canter okay so we can't just divide by performance level and expect to see women on the on the on the start line yeah i mean that that's a that's a really important thing i mean sort of like we can see this we can see this in rowing if you're going to say well okay we'll just have different levels of performance. 
So we'll have like the A final and B final and the C final and the D final. What's going to happen is, I mean, that we have that. We have elite, we have champ, we have club, we have novice. We know what would happen if the best club teams raced the best champ teams from, uh, so the best men's club team raced the best women's champ team. The thing is, we can, we can talk about different advantages. We can talk about, oh, yes, but if you equalized everything on the basis of height, well, there are some pretty damn fast kind of like five foot ten and five foot six inch tall rowers that we've rowed with um, who had rowing machine scores that would put them in the, God, something like the 99th percentile of women. Mm. Um and so you would still be seeing if you if you just have if, if you make everything on the basis of height or everything on the basis of weight or everything on the basis of arm length or leg length or some like very crude metric that is associated with performance, that's not what male and female performances segregate along they will still segregate on the basis of sex and between ability levels between club and champ between no between club women's club and men's club between women's champ and men's champ between women's elite and men's elite between women's novice and men's novice you will still see a segregation of raw ability and within that, that would suggest that even if you're reducing through testosterone suppression, that raw, that difference in raw ability, it's still the idea of having male and female categories is still a very good one. But what about the argument that uh, even with suppression and what have you, Sport is all about maximizing your natural advantages. So if you have these natural advantages, why not just use them? Well, I mean, th this is the M Michael Phelps has really long arms and short legs and is really tall. Um, so first of all, these are not the things that sporting performance segregates along. They kind of help. So he here's a little interesting little thought experiment. Basketball players are typically much taller than average. Yeah. You know, saying, oh, I'm over six foot, I'm tall enough to play basketball. Well, you're kind of deluded. You know, you, you need to be taller than that. Right. Here's a question for you. How tall was Michael Jordan, the Ooh. greatest ba basketball player of all time? Oh, I don't know. Let's say six, six. Six foot five. Okay. Six foot five and a bit. Not the tallest he guy. He, he, he was the same height as my dad. He, he was an inch taller than me. So okay. he, wasn't, he wasn't super tall. That wasn't where his, his skills or competitive advantage yeah. came from. I mean, I, I don't know if you ha had a chance to see The Last Dance, the, the Netflix documentary about like the, the six championships he won. You watch the things he did. And I, I used to play basketball in school. And I used to watch Michael Jordan when I was playing basketball in school. And I used to think one day I'll be able to do that. And now that I'm grown up, I realize that I would never have been able to do that. 
I would never been able to be that explosive, that athletic, that utterly quick in so many different aspects of my motion. Okay. It wasn't because he was the tallest player. Like these very, very crude metrics of you have this advantage. I mean, okay, let's talk about Ian Thorpe. He had the big feet, didn't he? Even yeah. though most, even though most of the, the motive power in swimming comes from the upper body and arms. Yeah. Do you, do you know? Do you know who else had really? Who has like? He's basically somewhere between six foot four and six foot five inches tall, with really big feet and really long arms. Do you know anyone else like that? Well, apart from you, um... it's me. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, I'm more or less exactly the same person as Ian Thorpe. Okay, back in 2002, when he was demolishing the world freestyle record, making some of the best swimmers in the world look slow and stupid, and everybody's saying, "Oh, well, you see, he's six foot four inches tall. He's got he's got size 14 feet, and he's got these really long arms with these." great big hands on the end it's like it's just like i was a swimmer at that point i was a swimmer and i was i couldn't do what he did it wasn't because of these really crude metrics i have all of those metrics and it's still- so bloody irritating and i'm literally a minute slower than him over 400 meters so crude metrics again and this comes back to the idea of being clinically surgical and blunt instruments, crude metrics are not actually helping us here when yeah. we try and break down this discussion in those so, terms. So, so when you turn around and you say, stop segregating sport by sex, and you start saying, segregate sport by height, or segregate sport by weight, or pre-established performance, or any of these things, it's not going to reduce the gap you're not going to see all the six foot four inch tall female rowers and swimmers on the podium next to the guys but then if you that is not how it works right because there are so few ladies who are that tall might be one argument but then if you line up all of the five foot eight and six foot swimmers and rowers we'd get the same outcome yes Essentially, yeah, you're between five foot eight and six foot, which is normal male height and versus the tallest women, essentially, the tallest women will not beat highly trained rowers or swimmers of normal male height. Those guys of normal male height might not be able to beat the Michael Phelps and the Ian Thorpes and the Grant Hackett's, but... they can beat women because the difference between men and women is greater than between tall, highly trained athletes and short, highly trained male athletes by a long way. So it's not going to be until you're coming right down to where there are quite a lot of women, but there are virtually no men. So below five foot, for instance, that you're actually going to see women start to win these categories. And then it means you're going to have a women's swimming competition that's only going to feature women who are below five foot tall. 
So we can segregate by crude metrics like height. It would put a lot more women in the mix, but they still wouldn't win because of the things we previously discussed. And it's only when you, if you continue to segregate by a metric like height, it's only when you get down to such a ridiculous level that only women will compete that you will actually see women start to win. So that, that, yeah. That comes back, you know, we said at the start that the whole point about sport is it it is, for, it is for all. You stand on the start line with equivalence to your competitors. Everyone starts on a level playing field. This is not a level playing field. This is actually making a mockery of those ideas. Yes, essentially. And again, we're talking, we've mostly been talking about the difference between male athletes and female athletes. If we're taking the idea of a male athlete who transitions into a woman and suppresses their testosterone or possibly has complete surgical removal of their testicles, okay, which does happen, um, for one year, okay, and we can only talk about this for one year because that's the limits imposed by the IOC, after one year, most of their advantages or most of the advantages that they possess, they will still possess. Okay. So if, if we can't do this on the science or the segregation or however you want to call it, what, what's the morality of this? Where are we, where are we in terms of... of so, yes, the morality of these things. Now, I think, personally, so what we've discussed so far is the experimental evidence that says that actually segregating sport by sex is very sensible. Um, there aren't better metrics that you can segregate sport by. You can't segregate it by height. If you segregated it by performance, you would have literally thousands of men winning the A through to Z final before you would actually get the first women winning something and we can't have thousands of finals. Um, and I actually think that, and that actually the advantage that men have doesn't, isn't taken away by testosterone suppression. So we then have to look at the morality of whether trans women should be included in the category of their choice, which seems to be increasingly being included in women's sport. And if that is their choice, should we accommodate that choice? And that's where it starts getting quite subjective quite quickly, because you'll have a lot of people going, well, of course we should. And then we'd have a lot of people saying, well, of course we shouldn't. And a lot of it will be driven by personal uh, personal morality, personal ethics. Yes. And as we've established, you know, both in our conversation here, but also in some of the responses we got on Twitter, um, people can hold some quite extreme views. And people can hold radically different views and i mean the problem is that the only kind of theoretical external agency in or arbiter of truth immorality 
is apparently religion. Everything else, as far as morality is concerned, is genuinely a social construct. But religion is not a social construct. However, quite a few religious people would solve this problem by simply just not having women's sport at all. Um, you know, there, there are, I, I, I think, certain fundamentalist points of view in all religions. When I'm not going to single out any particular religion, but in all religion that would actually turn around and say, you know what? We can solve this. These, these women need to get back into the kitchen and they need to start raising children and they shouldn't be doing silly sporting activities. They're not girls anymore. And I don't think that's a particularly helpful point of view. And I think as we're both atheists, we're not really going to take that point of view of things. No, and we're not we're not commenting on any particular religion uh, specifically because in this country we are only a few hundred years past burning people because they held the wrong religion. So there is there is a fundamentalist strain in our own social um, constructs and our own institutional parameters that um, we are still working through. So this isn't us flinging, you know, as as the good book says, we are we are living in glass houses, so we are not necessarily throwing stones, but if we were to go to the other extreme and go away from re religious bigotry and to a, a socially relativistic view of these things, what would the outcome be? Well, I think if we looked at Judith Butler's gender trouble, um, which arguably is the handbook for all such things, um, we might actually sort of like demand to know why at least 50% of the slots in all women's university sport were not actually reserved for trans women because there are two categories. There are women and there are trans women and therefore there should be equal representation of both. Um, now, there, I think there are a few flaws in the logic of that as well. And in general... Um, I think gender trouble has largely been used by aging university professors trying to groom the most attractive of their undergraduate intakes into abandoning any hope of an age-appropriate relationship. So we probably need another set of rules. It is, but let's frame this subject of choice because this, this, um, unlike millimoles and chromosomes and, and, and I think millimoles are some kind of very, very small mole, like one that hasn't been discovered yet. And like you get bigger moles that dig tunnels and these little millimoles just go behind them and use the stuff the bigger moles do a little bit like uh, remoras and sharks. Um, ethics and morality as we've, we've gone to two extremes there to show how ridiculous they are and how, how everyone's personal ethics and personal morality are completely different, you know, can be wildly extreme and wildly subjective and wildly different to the next person. But we have to remember, and this is something that I can actually comment on with some authority, in the third decade of the 21st century, we are still but a footnote to the ancient Greeks. And I don't mean that in the sense of exposing infants on hillsides, although we've all got some cousins that we'd like to do that to, or indeed consensual homoerotic buggery, although if you're among consenting adults and that's your thing, then go for it. But our, our broader, wider ethical and moral systems, no matter how 
evolved we like to think that we are essentially come from people in togas with a vested interest in olive oil um what we have here what we are living in still despite what we might like to think about our evolution are essentially societies that are predicated on Grecian ethics. Now, these were enshrined by a broadly Judeo-Christian religion in the Roman period when Constantine made uh, Christianity the religion of the empire. And then when the Germans eventually overran the empire, what you then had was this very, very weird thing where the Grecian ethics that the Romans then took on and enshrined within the state religion then became perpetuated and protected by a barbaric warrior caste from Germany. And you might go, well, yes, this is just in Europe, but in Europe, we exported everyone that we didn't like and all of our religious nut jobs to America. So that's America as well. And if we're talking about Greece, we're also talking about Africa and the Mediterranean basin and the Near East where these religions came from. So our ethics and morality, we are still but a footnote to ancient Greece. And with that in mind, Lewin, which ethics and which system of ethics and morality are we going to choose for our discussion of this? Well, we're going to choose virtue ethics from a good friend of mine, Harris Tottle. Now, Harris. <laughs> good old Harris. Harris maintained that there are universally admired character traits. Okay. And these are, and it, it's, uh, he described these character traits as being a golden mean. They were in, they were at the center of two less desirable uh, extremes. So courage, for instance, is at the center of um, recklessness on one side and cowardice on the other. Okay. So courage in the face of fear. And these, his suggestion was that we had a universal understanding of virtue. And this is, this is virtue ethics. And, and yes, I do know it's, it's not Harris Tottle from Croydon. It's actually Aristotle, um, the greatest philosopher of all time, pretty much. Well, yes. Well, you know. So basically, he what we're about to what we are um, about to talk through is a, a list of admired character traits, which, in defining the morality and ethical approach of an individual, descri describe both his self worth as an individual, but also his the way that he reflects upon his wider society. Would that be a fair comment? I, th I think, think so. I mean, I mean, I I would not describe my, myself um, as an expert on Aristotelian ethics, but. Uh, if, if my my takeaway from reading it is that there are two key points. One is that morality is a reflection of personal character, and two that there is a universal universality to what we regard as a moral character. Now. This is a dangerous thing to choose because a lot of these things are, again, social constructs that vary from culture to culture. But again, if we look at courage, temperance, liberality or generosity, magnificence, 
um, in an Elon Musk style of thing. <laughs> Magnanimity, um, proper ambition, truthfulness, wittiness, friendliness, modesty, and righteous indignation. And these weren't just the eleven commandments. He's, he, 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 Aristotle frames them in terms of it's courage in the face of fear. It is temperance when confronted by pleasure or pain. Yeah. It is liberality if you happen to have wealth and possessions, so you're not yeah. basically tight. Um, it's magnificence if you have great wealth and possessions. Magnanimity is with 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 honor. Proper ambition with normal honors. Truthfulness, which does not come at the cost of self-expression. A wittiness in conversation or social en en engagement. Friendliness within your social conduct modesty in the face of shame or shamelessness and righteous indignation in the face of injury. So the, yeah. these were all framed. He didn't just randomly pick these. He framed them within the context of the individual and their engagements with wider society. And then we have to look at these and say, if these are universally admired traits of a virtuous person. Which of these is Liar Thomas displaying? Which of these are a sportingly adept trans woman who competes in women's sports displaying? Are they displaying courage in the face of fear? I'm, 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 I'm not offhand. I'm, I'm going to think I, my natural instinct is to say, when I look at this, when I look at Fallon Fox or Lauren Howell or, um, Laya Thomas competing, I do not see them as behaving in a virtuous fashion. And we can add to that, what are critics of Leah Thomas? Are they displaying these, these characteristics and, and indeed supporters? Because the debate is not friendly. It's not looking for a way forward. It is basically two, and two sides digging in and fighting to the death for their position. So, yep. I mean, I, I, I think that's absolutely a very fair point. Um, arguably, liberality is not being shown to trans women, even if trans women are not necessarily showing proper ambition and temperance, um, or it's... maybe even truthfulness. Well, is it is it a is it a proper ambition to want to compete in that arena if it also means that it fundamentally leads to the oppression or the undercutting of someone else? And in this case, it it, it is the female sporting representatives who are competing in the same arena. And is is the Is it modest? Is it friendly? Is it truthful? Is it behaving with magnanimity? 
And the indignation that's being thrown out on behalf of Leah Thomas and thrown against Leah Thomas, um, is that righteous indignation? I know that, you know, we exist as broken oars on Twitter and Twitter I have reason to believe is essentially the hive mind of humanity where people seem to think that because it's on social media, they can just post the most horrific, bigoted and completely horrible things that they carry around in their brain, like a, like it's some kind of brain dump and nobody will notice or, or you know, say anything about it. I know we, we live in- But a, enough about flame tackle. But enough about flame tackle. I know that we, we, we live in a small and very friendly corner of it and we're very lucky for that, but it doesn't seem to be a particularly nuanced debate. It doesn't seem to be a particularly friendly debate. It doesn't seem to be a debate actually that wants to move forward the issue and resolve it in a way, in in a way that has liberality in, in the sense that it, it comes to a just and fair and equable settlement for everyone so that trans women and trans men have opportunities in sport and women and men can compete in fair and equivalent arenas. So how how would we do that? That this is this is actually what I genuinely struggle to consider. How would we reach that idea? And an equitable settlement. It's a difficult question, and it, it's it's one that's going to take a long time to to work out. And and looking at the way it's been handled so far, it's going to be handled very very badly before it's handled <laughs> very very well. And that's not a comment on probably. That's not a comment on, on us talking about it. It's when you look at the way that the IOC has managed these things from Casta Semenyaya um, onwards, it's cack-handed in the absolute extreme. So, I mean, let's, let's, take, let's take it from first principles. We've said that sport is, is something that we support. We see the value in sport beyond the medals, even though the medals are also great. We see the social value in sport. We see the human value in sport. We have to come back to the idea and the recognition that all, all sporting endeavors are fundamentally arbitrary. They're arbitrary in their rules, the distances we run, the distances we row, the distances we swim, the rules regarding how we score points or how we progress, the equipment we use, whether you use a bat or a racket or an epee or a, why you can pick the ball up in rugby, but you kick it in football. And we could go back through history and we could talk about the fundamental roots of sport being in, in, in war, essentially, uh, games and pursuits, whether it's wrestling in ancient, ancient Greek, whether it's um, gladiatorial sword fighting in ancient Rome, whether it is pursuits like riding or falconry or hunting as um, training, aristocratic training for war. And we could go on to talk about the post-industrial, post-reform invention of, of leisure as in places like the UK and uh, how that led to an increase in mass sporting participation and uh, specialization as a driver for sports that we take for granted today. And in fact, we have talked about those things. We've talked, well, I've talked about the, the history of British rowing because I am a Northern revolutionary, but essentially we've, we've talked about those things. And no matter how naturally we frame them, as being natural expressions of our human joy and movement and exploring the limits of our physical potential, we do so in things that are arbitrary. 
And if they are arbitrary and made, then they can be remade to be more inclusive and more representative would be my starting point for that. So you would say that Leah Thomas should compete at the highest levels of university swimming? I would in say the that, women's section. I wouldn't say that, no, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I, I would say that she has a right to compete in the highest levels of university swimming, but it has to be with equivalence. And that's the thing that we keep coming back to, it, because the categories about who can compete and when and how and where and the rules they complete by and the entry criteria and the refereeing and scoring and the umpiring and all of those things, these are all arbitrary things that are put in place to provide structure and order and also fairness. They're put in place to level the playing field. This is this is um, when you look at the evolution of cricket or the evolution of horse racing or the evolution of, of, of rowing or anything. It's so that anywhere or even things like boxing, uh, so you can't have a nine stone boxer fighting a 19 stone Tyson Fury. It's so that when you enter the competition, you do so in a, in a way that has equivalence and fairness. So you all start off from the same equal starting point. So Leah Thomas can certainly compete and should be allowed to compete and encouraged to compete. But should she not be competing against other Leah Thomases, her equivalence? Are there enough Leah Thomases? Or I mean, could she compete against women, but with a handicap? So, for instance, like Masters round, when the Masters A and B and C and D all compete in the same race, but they start at different points. If we have, we have established criteria for entry in women's swimming and men's swimming, um, and I will be screamed at, no doubt, again on Twitter by um, people with with with. Uh, a longer history in this field or a deeper appreciation of the history of LGBT rights and the development of um, those rights as kind of social and legis legislative constructs. But are we not looking at the evolution of a new category? And therefore, because it is a new category, it needs to exist as its own new category. Agree that only represents 0.2% of the population. I don't really see I don't really see any other way that you can do it in a way that's fair, given that we've established that the the biology of it can never be fair. Yeah, um, quite possibly. Um, I mean, again, th this this is what I this is where I come down. I do not think that you can ever turn around and say it's fair for trans women to compete against women without some kind of handicap and then you have to decide what the handicap is going to be um and that's the point where we kind of um, came in because you you made that point on our twitter feed and then the entire world in a way that we haven't seen since bikey twitter last piled on decided to pile onto us because we said that it wasn't fair but yes, I, I think somehow allowances must be made for trans women. Um, 
I, I, you know, there, there clearly are more trans women these days than there seem to have been any point in the past, or certainly my past. And sport is of great benefit to all people, and trans women are people and should be included within sport. Um, I just genuinely don't know that it's women's sport that they should be included. We have to acknowledge that there are human beings at the centre of these debates, and it's probably, it appears to be very distressing for the ladies that Leah is racing against. I imagine that she herself has is facing similar pressures, and we're not denying the idea that everyone should have access to sport, that everyone should be allowed to do it. But when two, well, let's be honest, when when it's the two of us from Broken Oz podcast debating this and, and being able to see, well, look, there are obviously issues here, and there are people in the highest positions in sport who've had years, if not decades, to get to grips with this emergence, and they're still making absolute cack-handed balls of it, if you would have pardoned the, um, the pun given the, the context. It's really very, very disappointing that, that the people who love sport don't seem to be the ones who run it and administer it. Yeah, um, it, it is a shame. Um... Who knows, within the next three to nine months, you could even have a second episode of us. Indeed. Um, or it could just be us just like, you know, literally we might just get cancelled. Um, <laughs> we, we might we, we might have just said the wrong thing. We, we might have got male and man mixed up too many times. Yeah, this, this could be the end of us. But, you know, seeing as we're down to our last listener, it's been a great run. Thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> right. And that, I think, should be 